0: Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. And then, of course, this year they came out with that uh, that there's a correlation with Alzheimer's and dementias. in. Uh, with Diet Coke. With right? Diet Coke, right? Yeah. So I said the only thing I got left is my brain, and I can't <laughs> afford to lose it, so I'm going to just drink coffee all the time now, which is... Supposed help you live longer. It, it's, it's got sp- antioxidants.
1: Was it specifically Diet Coke, or was it? I think was it was NutraSweet, Nicole. Oh, oh uh, aspartame. Okay. So, so I'm going to apply my father principle here. Got to die something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is Rotations. I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, assistant professor of family medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, <clears throat> and. We have another specialty spotlight, and I'm going to give it over to Sarg, and then take it back to say nice things about our guest. Nisarg Bakshi, OMS2, our host.
2: Welcome to another episode of Rotations. Uh, We are doing another specialty spotlight episode today with uh, ER doctor and Supreme Queen of (laughs) Ohio (laughs) University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, Dr. Nicole Wadsworth. Her official title is uh, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, but we just call her the Supreme Queen. I've known Dr. Wadsworth
0: for a long time. And I can count on my hand, uh, with fingers left over, the number of doctors that I want to see attending to me in an ER. And she's one of them because I just know who she is. I know the quality of her work. And I'm just telling you, dead dead to rights honest, even though she parked herself in this little backwater town of Athens, Ohio, she could work anywhere. Tampa General, Cook County, I don't care where it's at. This is the person or the type of doctor you want to see when you're in the emergency room. Just a wonderful ER doctor. Yeah, okay, that's it. Well, I'm done. We're, that's all we're we we're really to excited to have on. Have you on? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you for those kind words. <laughs> it's true.
2: We don't have to. It's it's easy to compliment someone if it's true. We're also joined by our panelist Chris Sinowski, who's actually the president of our EM Club. Um, th- do you have any nice things to say about Chris? Or uh, he's Polish,
0: <laughs> and I, I think Poland's a,
2: Polish, I think. Poland is a lovely country. It's beautiful <laughs> and it's pretty, and I like the
0: flag. Well, thank yeah. You. Yeah. yeah, you're really
2: <laughs> American. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Chris. No problem. Um, So, Dr. Wadsworth, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Um, So I actually was lucky enough to be a student at Ohio University. It was College of Osteopathic Medicine when I graduated. Trained for my third and fourth year at what is now Affinity Hospital in Maslin. At that time, it was Doctors Hospital, Stark County. And did my internship there, and that was back in the days when we were required to do an internship. And then I went on to do um, emergency medicine uh, residency at South Point Hospital up in Warrensville Heights and upon close graduation uh, was recruited back to Ohio University to be a faculty member and so I started back here in a as I sort of tease a paid position as opposed to paying to be here <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2001 and um, I have been faculty member, and served in a variety of administrative roles uh, during my tenure here. I've maintained my clinical practice of emergency medicine over time, but uh, has, have pared back also over time um, in that specialty.
2: Well, that's great. So what got you initially interested in emergency medicine?
1: Um, so I um, like to think of myself in two different ways. Um, so, not that I'm diagnosed with ADD, what what one may accuse me of that, but really, as a border collie, if I have to, um, <laughs> uh, if I have to give you my dog persona, it is a border collie. I am in constant motion, and I have to be doing something. And as we mentioned at the intro, I like to be in charge. So. <laughs> Queen, I think it was. Yes. Supreme Queen. Her, her Highness. Supreme Queen. <laughs> we call her Her Highness. Um, Dr. Her Highness. <laughs> <laughs> and so emergency medicine sort of offers all of those things. You, you're constantly in motion. You're constantly challenged. Um, and you get to be in charge. Uh, my uh, One of my colleagues, when I was a resident... Um, like to uh, say he went to captain school and so he's captain and perhaps he was a little arrogant but um, he was a captain and and he was in charge and uh, so I do I do like being in charge but I like working with a team because collectively we get to to be more successful and I and partly that comes back from my background I played sports I think from the moment I was born to get back to that border collie thing (laughs) and um, just being a part of a team has always been important.
2: Sure. And when did you know that ER was the route for you?
1: Um, towards the end of my um, fourth year, during internship, um, there was a particular um, ER uh, physician at the time up at Doctors. Her name was Laura Dulleson, and she was uh, she was great. Uh, she w- wasn't a big fan. She didn't like to necessarily do procedures. And so, as a fourth year medical student, I constantly got calls. Hey, you want to come put in this line? You want to come do the suturing? You want to? And so, I got <laughs> to do a lot. Um, because of her.
2: You know, one thing we like to do um, at rotations is, is kind of cater to a medical student, right? If someone's listening to this and uh, they have their EM rotation tomorrow, and let's say that they're going to be, uh, you know, studying with you or they're going to be rotating with you, what tips do you have? Uh, like what what diagnoses should they know before they come in, and shadow you?
1: So I, I think that's a really interesting question from a diagnosis standpoint. So in an emergency department, oftentimes we don't make a final diagnosis. Um, but the signs and symptoms that I would, would recommend a student know and at least have some initial thoughts on how to manage them would be things like chest pain. And um, if they focus their differential diagnosis on those things that are most lethal or the things I like to think of that we need to do something about right now. And if they could prioritize their differential diagnosis with those in mind, I think they'll be highly successful. The complaints that we see most commonly, chest pain, abdominal pain, back pain, headache. Mm -hmm. Um, If if a student could come to the ER knowing that information and how to initially manage it, Mm -hmm. I think they would be in a great spot.
2: Yeah, but th- those are so uh, vague, right? There's so many different things that can cause chest pain or, or low back pain. And so how do you, as an ER doc, kind of sift through those differentials? Like, what, what are the, some of the first things that you rule out right away?
1: So, again, it goes back to what is it that I need to do something about right this minute? And as you your workup tends to then support those things and refute them, And so it, we'll use chest pain because that's probably the most common reason people go to the ER. Um those, the five things that could kill you right now acute coronary syndrome, and epidemiologically, if you look at it, that's really common. So that's got to be high in your differential. Um, pneumothorax, pulmonary embolus, dissecting thoracic aneurysm. Th- those are, again, those are the things that we need to do something about now. And so you need to recognize them using your clinical history and exam to then hone in on your workup. And what testing are you going to do to either support your working diagnosis or refute your working diagnosis? Um, and then there is a list of 100 things that could cause yeah. chest pain that, although it's not as acute, um, we, pro- we may not diagnose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to have some general sense of what it is so we can appropriately triage that person to the next um, physician to evaluate it further.
2: Yeah. And and kind of going off that, can you talk Mm -hmm. about the kind of the relationship that ER physicians have with primary, or ER is part of primary care, but with other um, sort of specialties within primary care, you know, you would refer someone on to see whatever specialist that may be. So how do you communicate with that physician that you're passing a patient off to?
1: As a physician, I think you have to be reasonably well-versed with those specialties Mm -hmm. and how is it that they think and what's important to them. And so this would be a piece that I would suggest students think about as they do rotations. Perhaps you're not interested in pediatrics or you're not interested in OBGYN, but you are interested in emergency medicine. What are the things that are really important to those specialties so that when you do communicate the, that patient or problem, you're talking in their language? And, and I think emergency physician that can do that well is generally highly successful. So... You know, if I, if I have a patient that I want to refer to GI for chest pain, I'm going to pull out those pieces of the history that really make me think this is GI in origin. Not necessarily sell the, the case, but really support why I'm thinking that. Uh,
2: are, are there any developments that you've seen um, you know, in, in your time as an ER physician that you've kind of noted that they've, they've changed the practice or they've really had a, a significant impact?
1: Um, certainly, the access to imaging has rapidly evolved since even my time in emergency medicine. So I, I can CT about anything I want anytime I want. And so it's nice to have access to that um, imaging. Uh, it's, and sometimes maybe people use it as a crutch, which, which mm-hmm. you know has, has good and bad um, implications. And also access to real-time imaging. I like to think it was not that long ago, but when I first started practicing, I had to read my own CTs. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a radiologist at 3 o'clock in the morning to say, yeah, it's okay, or no, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And again, I think those things have really helped the practice of emergency medicine be a little bit more targeted. Um, Ultrasound technology, I think, has certainly changed bedside diagnosis and the rapidity at which that can happen. If you're suspicious of a AAA and you put that ultrasound probe on a belly and you see it, you don't need a te- another test. You just get that person where they need to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, We've talked about ultrasound on the show before. Do you, do you want to talk about
0: that again? <clears throat> yeah, I want to make a, one other comment, too. Uh, and this is a, there's a weird relationship between ER doctors and everyone else. Um, most doctors have not practiced emergency medicine. And they don't understand <clears throat> the challenge of it. And the thing about Dr. Wadsworth is she may be a border collie, but she's a non-barking border collie. Okay? There's a lot of ER doctors that are barking border collies, and they'll let you have it uh, because you got to remember that they're under constant pressure of a rack of charts that's waiting to be seen, uh, people who are upset because they've waited four hours, they don't understand the concept of triage, uh, they've got four working chest pains, two shortness of breaths, and then an earache, and they're constantly trying to do this calculus. So what do I have to see uh, first so that I don't miss something? Um, I used to say a long time ago that the ER doctor is always wrong and always bad. And because that's what happens, you have your family doctor that they loves, and then you have the guy at the other end who gets the patient and says, I saved your life. And then somewhere in the middle is this poor ER doctor that was trying to work within a matter of a half an hour, an hour, to come up with a a, a way of keeping this person from you know going down the toilet – And no one remembers who they are unless something goes bad. And then they were horrible. They didn't treat me well. I had to wait forever, right? And so I think it's really important for people to understand there's a reason why the burnout rate's high in emergency medicine. It's a lot of pressure on the people that practice it. I I lasted 10 years, and I couldn't do it anymore uh, because I was afraid I was going to snap at patients. And the other thing is, as much as Dr. Wadsworth says, understand the specialty that you're talking to, I think it's important that if you don't do emergency medicine, you understand the language of ER doctors. ER doctors want a very deliberate presentation. They wanna know what's coming in because in their processing, and tell me if I'm wrong, Nicole, but basically they're thinking airway, breathing, circulation. Is that covered? Because I, now I have time to breathe. I can work on almost anything as so I know I'm not gonna get into an emerging dissection or something. Uh, so it's important, I think, for kids who have no interest in, and you'll get into this in a but no interest in doing emergency medicine to really on their rotation sit down and listen to what the ER doctor says of what a good presentation is. And the question I would ask is, if I'm calling you from my pediatric office, how should I present a case to you? And learn that religiously, because you will make friends out of ER doctors, and they will want to hear from you if you do it that way. And they won't be mad at you because they'll say, "If this guy's calling or this gal's calling, and they do it right, okay, I get it. They they can't do everything." I forget your question. What
2: was the question? No, that's all great. Um, my question was about ultrasound, right? We were oh, talking yeah, about. yeah,
0: ultrasound. Yeah, there's no question. It, and and <clears throat> you know, I took ultrasound down to Haiti. Uh, we just secured, uh, 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 I'll, I'll use the vendor because they worked with a sonocyte. They don't support us anyway, but uh, they make the most, most robust ultrasound unit on the planet for bedside ultrasound. Um, and we just scored one for a missionary hospital in, in Haiti. Um, you can use the heck out of ultrasound, and uh, you don't end up with the 1,200 or 2,400 uh, chest x ray equivalents of CT. Uh, it doesn't cure everything. And there's some things you need CT for. Okay, I wouldn't want to try diagnosing a diverticulitis without a CT scanner. And I, they're not real good for stones. And they're, you know, if I can get someone to drink and I can and I have time, I'd rather see an aneurysm on CT, but I can certainly find it on ultrasound. So you've got to know the technology. But, yeah, it's benign. You can do it on anybody pregnant or otherwise. And, and not only that, but the modalities and what we learn from it keep developing. Mm-hmm. So procedures and techniques and processes, and you're not dependent on a radiologist anymore. A, a well-skilled, uh, well-trained ER doctor learns ultrasound, so when they come out, their imaging's right there at the bedside. They roll it up and say, I'm going to do a fast exam. Do they have any fluid in the, in the peritoneum, or do they need a surgeon? It's a really fantastic thing, and, it, it, and it's scaling, so the prices are coming down all the time, and it's,
2: it's available, and it's mm-hmm. easy, and it doesn't hurt patients. It's cool. Dr. Wadsworth, do you feel that ER docs are sometimes underappreciated for, for all the work that you guys do? Prescini scores
1: really interesting uh, <laughs> question. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna sidestep your question a little, and um, <laughs> I, so I think um, you know it's funny you say Prescani scores, which sort of r- rule the marketplace, so to speak. I think we are evaluated on the wrong test, quite honestly, and that if <laughs> we had the opportunity to be evaluated on emergency medicine, that we probably would do a little bit better. Do you manage an acute coronary syndrome? Do you manage a trauma? Do you, you know, manage this bowel perforation appropriately and get them where they need to be in a timely manner? I think most emergency medicine physicians would knock that out of the park.
2: How are you currently evaluated?
1: Um, There's uh, several different um, things that uh, contribute to that. So patient satisfaction, which, again, I think that's, uh, it's shifting to patient experience. Um, but patient satisfaction in the emergency department is an oxymoron, in my opinion. Because um, really, they're coming to the ER generally in crisis mode. And how the heck are they going to be satisfied? <laughs> it just doesn't work. But, but patient experience is one of them. And you're oftentimes compared to your peers that you work with in the emergency department, as well as either regionally or within a hospital system or even nationally. And it depends on the staffing group on how they're going to mark you up. There are timing metrics that you and standards you're held to are expected to um, take care of. That again can contribute to your pay. So, how quickly do I see the patients? Um, and most uh, ERs want the patients to be seen within ten minutes of arrival. If the volumes are right and the patient-provider mix is right, you can achieve that. But You know, to use our local hospital as an example, if you get an influx of 20 people in half an hour, there's absolutely no way you could see all those people within 10 minutes. It's not going to happen. The other is throughput times. So how long does it take for you to move a patient through the system into whatever disposition they may need? They go home. They go to another facility. They get admitted. They go to surgery, whatever. That standard is 120 minutes. So two hours you have from initially seeing them to dispositioning them and getting them where they need to be. Mm -hmm. That number is heavily reliant on a lot of other people, not just the emergency physician. Say I have a case of an appendicitis, patient's stable, needs to go to surgery, the surgeon's tied up in the OR with a serious case. I can't get that patient out of the ER. It's not going to happen. I think it's sort of unfair at times to tie salary Mm -hmm. promotions, et cetera, to metrics that aren't completely out of your control. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm nice to patients, I give them good discharge instructions. I set up appropriate follow-up. I admit the appropriate people. Mm -hmm. I think those are things I can control. I think Mm -hmm. those are the things that I should be evaluated on.
0: Yeah, and I'll just make a comment. You know, you drive into some of the metropolitan areas of Ohio, and you see these billboards that say ER, and there's a big digital number there, wait time. And what Dr. Wadsworth just said is highly contingent. You may be thinking, oh, 15 minutes, I'll get seen. And two squads roll up with chest pain. You will not be seen. And, I mean, you are not going to get seen if you come in with your hangnail or your back pain for three weeks when there's two chest pains. And so the administrators of this country need to have a reality check with their marketing people of, look, don't put those numbers up there. I've always said this. If you're calling an ER to find out what the wait time is, you're probably not sick enough to be in an ER. Right, I think making
1: emergency medicine a consumer-oriented business is the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Our our healthcare system is heavily reliant on acute care. Anyways, to say hey, you could get into the ER in fifteen minutes, is further propagating that, and that's not where we want to be from a healthcare system. We want people to be well and take care of themselves, not go to the ER. And the folks that need to be there don't care how long they're going to wait, generally. And, and they're all usually right. seen fairly rapidly because <laughs> they need to be seen.
2: The burnout rate in ER physicians is, is astronomical. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that this is, you know, all, everything we're talking about with the workload, do you think that's the reason or is it more to do with the schedule?
1: I think it's, it's multifactoral,
2: like everything.
1: Um, I, I think some people end up in the specialty that shouldn't be in the specialty, honestly, and they didn't um, self-select properly. Um, and some of that job you know, steps back to us as educators to make sure students are making good choices and, and to help them truly understand what they're choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, shift work can have its pluses and minuses, and, and this is one of the things when I talk to students who are thinking about emergency medicine, you really have to consider, is it important for you to be home every night with, to see your family? Or is it okay that you aren't there all the time? Um, And I think those are really important things to consider on the surface. It'd be like, well, what does it matter? It matters. It matters in 10 years. Um, So that that can be hard. And me personally, I found it more and more challenging to work overnight shifts, Mm -hmm. having administrative duties. And I made some poor choices. You know, I'd work an (laughs) overnight shift, and then I'd come in and I'd work all day here. And then I'd go back and work... Another shift, oh my goodness. And um, that was really stupid on my part and I, I was really tired and grumpy. Um, so I think the shift work can take its toll mm-hmm. and um, you just have to be mindful of that. And um, I think the what I describe as the wandering baseline of expectations, makes it difficult for <laughs> emergency physicians. I'm, call, I'm putting that on the board, the wandering baseline <laughs> of expectations. That's our whole life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um that you know, maybe Tuesday it's okay if if you have a throughput time of, uh, you know, 180 minutes, but on Thursday it's going to ratchet down to 120 minutes. And that that has something that it it's constantly changing, right? Because there's a larger mm-hmm. health system that's influencing okay. those those sort of decisions and
0: expectations. Nice thing about emergency medicine, uh, there's, there's a bit major downside. The major downside is you're trained to be an ER doctor. It's very hard to go in and do inpatient management. It's very hard to go out and open up your family practice. You're trained to do emergency medicine, so you're kind of narrow. But there's a lot of ERs in the country. So if you don't like this situation, you can move. The other thing, too, is, and something that Dr. Wadsworth alluded to, is, so the reality is, as a doctor's age... It's harder and harder to pull the kind of volume and the kind of duration of shifts. But non-savvy administrators who look at that and say, well, that's a detriment, are losing perspective in the fact that she's got 20 years of experience seeing everything on the planet and expertise. And so do you really want to crash your most experienced personnel when it comes to serious problems? Or do you want to engage in something in the military would call fighter management, which is, okay... Wadsworth, I know you want to work fifteen shifts this month because you want to take a vacation at some point, but we are not gonna allow you to because you you're not allowed to burn out. We need you to work a couple night shifts for that expertise, but we need to make sure we manage your time. The airlines do this. Everybody does this that understands the safety risks. In medicine, we still don't do it. And so I'm concerned about those really experienced ER doctors that just crash because they can't work the kind of hours they used to, and they're being forced in these situations that that doesn't respect the level of acumen and expertise they have. That's a really important thing, I think, administrators and policymakers need to understand.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just so you know, all our listeners are on the same page. Can you give an example of what uh, like an average week looks like, just in terms of shift work?
1: In the current, my current practice, there is a scheduler, and so there's a. It's not the clinician; it's a scheduler, and oftentimes physicians can, if you're a full-time ER physician you tell the scheduler, let the scheduler know when you're not available. And you've previously contracted, most likely with that group, to say I I can work 12 shifts a month, I can do 15 shifts a month, whatever, whatever you've made the agreement. And then that scheduler will schedule you within the context of perhaps 7, 10, 12 other people to fill the schedule. I'd like to think they have an eye to transitions, So if you're scheduled night shift on Monday, you don't come back at 3 o'clock on Tuesday, but that happens. Um, When I scheduled people, I tried to be really sensitive to that and not double back people unless they requested to do it um, and then also give them appropriate time off, particularly on weekends and and nights, and try to distribute night shifts fairly evenly. Mm -hmm. So I think in a well-scheduled ER that maybe you would maximum work four shifts a week, and Mm -hmm. this is based upon the assumption that you're working 12-hour shifts, which I have a whole, I sort of tag off of what you said. I mean, I've got a whole issue with 12-hour shifts, but anyways. They're hard, aren't they?
0: They're terrible. They really are hard on you.
1: Well, and there's studies to suggest that the last four hours, you're pretty useless. Anyway, so... I would imagine
2: after 12 hours of running
0: around, being on your feet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you could briefly comment, what's the difference psychologically working single coverage versus having an additional provider with you?
1: Yeah, so psychologically, it's great to have another person, even just another provider, not necessarily a physician. You always have somebody to bounce things off of, talk to, consider, um, gosh, something's not right here, but I'm not seeing what it is. And just to have another set of eyes, really, I think it makes it... A much better environment
2: and one other thing I I wanted to ask about just relating to burnout is Mm -hmm. kind of the emotional toll um, that ER can take because I so you know ER is something that I personally am interested in but one thing that would kind of really that kind of terrifies me is what if you miss something you know or what if uh, you make a mistake you know how do you how do you deal with that
1: so I have to say I come to every day knowing I'm going to make a mistake Mm -hmm. um, and that there will be things missed and overlooked and I just hope that it's not so serious and um, making, you know, there are some really simple things you can do for every single patient to try to minimize or mitigate that. Um, One of the big things I do is if something just doesn't seem right, if things just don't match up, either I talk to somebody else, I I tell everybody, give me five minutes, I have to look at this and think of it collectively. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. If there's something that's triggering that doesn't seem right, spend a little more time. And I, I tend to, if I can get away with it, always err on the conservative side. Everything looks okay. Something's not right with your story. I really think we need to keep you and call and try to make those arrangements. So sure. be more conservative than less conservative. Um, pay attention to vital signs. It may seem really simple, but they, they are a powerful tool, particularly if you can't s- find something else objectively but that person's heart rate is, st- is just up. Something's not right. And so that's another really powerful tool. Listen to your team around you. And if they're seeing something or hearing something that just, again, concerns you, pay attention to it. Um, don't ignore that blood work that maybe is a little abnormal and convince yourself everything else is okay. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things that I'll do. And I almost always engage the patient and the family in the decision-making this is what I'm seeing, this is what I think is happening, or I have no idea what's happening. These are the things I think we should do next. What do you think? And, and you mentioned about the emotional toll. Um, I, you know, I think a big part of being able to manage some of those emotional issues is taking care of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. if you walk into a shift, you've, you've only slept two hours, you just had a fight with your significant other or your kids told you that you were the worst human in the world or something like that. (laughs) You know, you're just in a bad frame. Not that you can avoid that, but I think just acknowledging It's like, oh, today is going to be difficult. I know I'm not in a good emotional state. I have Mm -hmm. to be mindful of that. Um,
0: Do you ever do callbacks yourself? Not really. You don't? Mm -mm. You don't find them useful? No. I, I always have, I just write it down. If there's something that I discharge someone and I just feel like I just need, I got in a habit of just writing a phone number down and just when I had a chance the next day or something, just calling back and just making sure, I, I found that was helpful uh, because then at least I knew where they were at. And sometimes it was, yeah, you know, I had to go back to the ER and they said, you didn't know what you're talking about. Sometimes it was, yeah, I'm glad you called and I'm not feeling as well. Should I go back? And you say, yeah, I think you need a second look. I, I
2: don't know if that's a useful thing uh, personally.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know if that helps. Well, I did want to give Chris a chance uh, if he had any questions or comments. You know, you are president of EM Club, so you're probably Um, a little bit interested in it. And a spot. And Polish. And Polish. That is true. (laughs) Um, I was actually going to ask a question. So with the
0: demand of emergency medicine, like you said, do you find um, freestanding ERs to be helpful? Because the reason why I'm asking is because I've kind of noticed because I've scribed in the ER for a year before I went to medical school. And pretty much if anything needs to be transferred from primary care to a different specialty, it always filters to, through the ER for triaging and just kind of getting a glance over. So almost like it's almost like you get double the work because you have to see them before they go to surgery or why not, even though they're
1: getting transferred in. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the freestanding ERs. And um, and I think there's probably some bad raps about freestanding ERs and sure. that they're just a glorified band-aid station, if you will, and I've, I've certainly heard negative um, feedback. I do think they serve a valuable role, particularly in communities that don't otherwise have an emergency department. And perhaps I'm biased, but I work in one. Um, I think the mistake that some hospital systems make in staffing those departments is they put inexperienced people there with the idea that, oh, you're just going to get urgent care things. That's not true. And actually, if you get a serious case... Um, an inexperienced provider is going to flounder in that sort of mm-hmm. environment, and I, and I actually think the more experienced physicians should be in those environments because the risk of getting something really critically serious is high, and it, that'll just walk in off
0: the street. Because um, they do put emergency on the on the building,
1: yeah, and you are held to emergency. That's standards. right. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> Um, As far as sort of like the secondary and and tertiary sort of triage, if you will, they're already in the family medicine office or their internal medicine office and they're sending them to the ER. I have to say from, I feel pretty fortunate, I've worked with a lot of providers in this particular area and I understand for the most part why they're sending the patient to the ER I don't ever take it as, gosh, they're just dumping their work on me and they're not doing their job. I I take it from the standpoint something has rubbed them the wrong way or this person is really seriously ill and they need to probably move to a higher level of care. And and I feel like the providers in this area are pretty good at sort of distinguishing that. An example, I had a patient from an internal medicine office um, sent the patient to the ER, and he was in third-degree heart block clearly that patient needed to be there clearly clearly he needed to go to a higher level of care (laughs) yeah
0: awesome (laughs) well good yeah I think we're good anything else you want to add Nicole real quick
1: just to sort of tie in the emergency I think this is partly why I've been able to be successful and practice emergency medicine for 20 years at this point is that I have multiple interests and I can be my laid back type A border collie in the emergency department right because there are details you have to pay attention to and others you can let go And then I get to work as a curriculum dean and be really type A and pay attention to the details and have time to think Mm -hmm. about it. So I've I'm so fortunate to be in a position that I get to address multiple parts of my personality and be
0: successful in the workplace. Okay, Okay. it's been good. Thank, yeah. you. Thank, thank you, thank you, so Doctor Wadsworth, uh, Thanks for having Her me. Highness, Doctor Her Highness, uh, <laughs> Supreme, Supreme Overlord, Supreme Queen. Queen of the Realm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Okay, this has been Rotations, and uh, we'll catch you again on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nassar Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks audio engineered by Kyle Snyder and video edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons but you cannot alter, edit or use the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com tweeting us at Rotations PCast, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash rotations and putting the word rotations in the subject line.